We are uh, continuing our discussion of dependent arising of the self in relation to others. <laughs> and we have uh, analyzed the relationship of uh, uh, a Buddhist practitioner who is working toward uh, attaining enlightenment in order to benefit all beings and uh, therefore has a relationship to all beings. So we've analyzed what type of uh, relationship uh, one would have both optimally and uh, in terms of uh, uh, obstacles that would arise when uh, we're trying to relate to all beings. And we've also uh, looked at uh, how when we are uh, relating to benefiting all beings, this would affect our own personal relationships with uh, close uh, uh, friends, partners, family members. And we have uh, done a similar type of analysis in terms of the relationship of a uh, student with a Buddhist teacher. So today what uh, I'd like to explore with you is the uh, relation with uh, Yidam that uh, we would uh, establish as a tantric practitioner. So the first question of course is what is a Yidam? Uh, the word Yidam is in Tibetan re, uh, means uh, a someone, some figure that uh, we establish a close bond or relationship with for our minds. In uh, Sanskrit, the word uh, implies a deity, some sort of a special figure that is wished for in the sense that uh, we're aiming to become like that. But uh, please be careful when uh, you hear the uh, term deity being used for these figures. Don't uh, confuse it and think that uh, we're talking about some sort of God in a heaven or uh, a creator being, an omnipotent creator being. It's not that at all. Um, these uh, meditational figures, or I sometimes call them uh, Buddha figures, or let's just leave it with the Tibetan word yidam, it's easier to say, um, are forms in which a uh, Buddha can manifest in order to benefit others. So a Buddha can appear in any form that is going to be of benefit to others, even as a bridge, for example, there are some accounts of that. But uh, these uh, yidams are specific forms that are uh, be, uh, helpful for practitioners to work with in order to attain enlightenment. Yeah, you have to remember that uh, a Buddha doesn't have any form established from his, own, his or her own side. The form that a Buddha appears in arises dependently on the uh, being that uh, he's trying to benefit. And it's the same type of uh, question when uh, we analyze that uh, when a Buddha teaches, when a Buddha speaks, everybody understands it in, in uh, their own language. So then the question is, well, but what language is Buddha speaking in? And you can't establish what language a Buddha is speaking in just from the side of a Buddha. 
So that's the voidness of a Buddhist speech. You can only establish what language it is dependent on the person that's hearing it. So the same thing in what a Buddha looks like. It's only established from the side of the uh, being that is um, perceiving the Buddha. So these yidams are basically of uh, two types. There may be more types, but uh, let's speak about two types. Some of them are infographics. An uh, infographic is uh, some sort of uh, um, graphic image that gives you information. Infographic. Infographic. <laughs> so it can be uh, just uh, geometrical, like a diagram. But uh, here, in this case, uh, if we use the example of the figure Yamantaka, Vajrabhairava, the, uh, uh, this figure has 34 arms, and if you add to that the body, speech, and mind, makes uh, uh, 37, and these represent, so it gives you information, it represents the uh, 37 uh, factors or practices that are done on the way to enlightenment. And the nine faces represent the nine categories of the Buddhist uh, scriptures. And the 16 legs represent the uh, 16 aspects of uh, voidness. So like that, the figure is an infographic, in other words, like a diagram that uh, represents many, many different aspects of the Buddhist path and teaching. So by imagining ourselves in uh, this form, of uh, Yamantaka, it helps us to keep in mind what each of the anatomical features represents. So it's a very sophisticated uh, system. In fact, the uh, form of a, uh, a supreme emanation, in other words, uh, a Buddha that we uh, usually see in Sutra with uh, 32 major features and 80 minor features of uh, the body, that's uh, also an infographic, because uh, each of these uh, 112, if you add the two together, uh, features uh, represents the cause that uh, uh, a Buddha um, uh, built up while practicing as a bodhisattva to become a Buddha. So when we see a, uh, a painting or a statue of uh, Buddha Shakyamuni, uh, we uh, uh, can gain much more from it than just uh, looking at it as a, as a uh, piece of art. There's a tremendous amount of information that uh, is depicted there in a, represented, uh, in a represented form. So, this is uh, one form of uh, a yidam, which is an infographic as uh, a representation of various aspects of the path. <laughs> then uh, the other form uh, that I'd like to uh, mention is uh, also an infographic. And here, the various features of uh, the figure represent aspects of samsara, you know, our uh, uncontrollably recurring existence with problems and all of that, uh, that we are trying to uh, uh, purify ourselves of. So a good example of that is uh, the figure of Kala Chakra. 
where, for example, the uh, 24 arms represent the 24 phases of the moon uh, during the year, the uh, 24 half cycles of the breath during the day, and together with uh, the body as a whole, the 25 uh, uh, features or um, features that are uh, mentioned in the Samkhya philosophy uh, and their analysis of uh, what exists. And uh, Kala Chakra helps to overcome the uh, misbeliefs, uh, the confused beliefs that come with that system. So these idams are very useful uh, vehicles that uh, uh, can help us in our uh, practice along the path. And although we can focus on them in front of us in a visualization, um, we also, uh, in uh, tantric practice, uh, imagine ourselves arising in these forms. Remember, we are uh, trying to... Uh, let me start that again. Remember, the word for uh, yidam in Tibetan means something that you make a close bond with for your mind. And because it's uh, with the mind, then uh, in uh, yidam practice, we always visualize with our minds. It's not that you stare at a uh, painting or a statue of these figures. You always either try to visualize it in front of you or visualize yourself in this form. And in uh, visualizing ourselves in uh, one of these forms, while trying to keep always you know, an understanding of what it represents, this acts as a, uh, a more efficient cause for actually uh, being able to manifest in various forms to help others uh, when we become a Buddha ourselves. This uh, Iran practice uh, uh, must be done within the context of uh, Mahayana practice, specifically with the, uh, in conjunction with the generation of bodhicitta. If uh, we try to practice uh, uh, visualizing ourselves or imagining ourselves as uh, a yidam without bodhicitta, then uh, it is said that this is a cause for being reborn as a ghost in the form of one of these figures. So this is uh, uh, quite an advanced practice and uh, quite dangerous if it's uh, not done properly. We can understand this uh, on a very uh, simple basic level that uh, if we haven't dedicated the uh, practice to our, toward our attainment of enlightenment, then it's only going to uh, affect our future samsaric rebirths. So that's why you would be born as a ghost in this form. But uh, there's a much more profound uh, level of understanding. What is bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is a mind which is aimed at our own individual enlightenments that have not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of our Buddha nature factors. So it's our own individual enlightenments, not the Buddha's enlightenment or not some general enlightenment, uh, but it's not yet happened, but it could happen. Why? Because we have the various Buddha nature factors networks of positive force and deep awareness and the voidness of the mind and so on that uh, will allow with the uh, uh, proper causes built up to become a Buddha.
become enlightened. And uh, this uh, bodhicitta mind is uh, supported by love and compassion and the exceptional resolve to really make a firm decision that uh, we're going to work to benefit all beings. But uh, bodhicitta itself is not identical to compassion. It's supported by compassion. So what is it aimed at? What are we focusing on when we speak about our own individual enlightenment that has not yet happened? Uh, We have uh, uh, the vision of conventional bodhicitta, or relative bodhicitta, sometimes it's called, and deepest bodhicitta, sometimes called ultimate bodhicitta. Uh, they are both aimed at the dharmakaya that uh, uh, we have not yet attained, which has not yet happened. Now, dharmakaya has two parts. So conventional bodhicitta is aimed at the, what I call the deep awareness uh, dharmakaya. Dharmakaya is uh, a corpus or body that dharma, that encompasses all dharmas, all things. So the deep awareness, uh, dharmakaya, is the omniscient mind of a Buddha that has all this huge list of qualities of the mind of a Buddha. Not only is it omniscient, knows all cause and effect, etc., but has equal love for everybody, etc., etc. And the uh, deepest bodhicitta is aimed at the uh, essential nature dharmakaya, the svabhavakaya, our um, own individual svabhavakayas that have not yet happened, but which can happen. So it's aimed at the voidness of that uh, um, deep awareness dharmakaya and the true stoppings that uh, have been attained, true stoppings of suffering and its causes. So I'm going into this detail about bodhicitta because I think very frequently it's not so clear what uh, bodhicitta actually is. Now, when we're aiming for a dharmakaya, our own individual dharmakayas, that omniscient mind of a Buddha, one of its qualities is that it can appear in any form to benefit others. So that would include the yidams. So when we are uh, imagining ourselves in the form of one of these yidams, this is based on uh, bodhicitta, that we're aiming at our not yet attained enlightenment that, as dharmakaya, can appear in these forms. So now, we explained how the self, the conventional self, me, is an imputation on every moment of experience made up of five aggregates. We don't have to go into that detail, but uh, uh, every moment of experience, our own personal experience. So if you think about it, uh, from the moment that we are uh, conceived and born until the moment of our death, all of that's me, isn't it? That's somebody else, even though we have grown and changed in each moment. So even, you know, the end of our lives that's still going to be me. The end of our life, hasn't, this present life hasn't happened yet, but we can still say the me is an imputation on that uh, moment of the end of our lives. It's still me. It hasn't happened yet, but it's still me. 
So Buddhism, of course, uh, asserts that uh, uh, the mental continuum, so each moment of uh, experience with the self as an imputation on it has no beginning and no end. So that me is an imputation, valid imputation on that entire continuum. So that entire continuum could include when we become enlightened. It's not that we necessarily are going to become enlightened and every moment we're getting closer to that. It's not like that. We have to build up the causes in order to become enlightened. But uh, we all have the ability to become enlightened. So that would be somewhere way down the line on the continuum of our moment-to-moment experience. And me would be a valid imputation on that as well. Uh, So we visualize ourselves in the form of this uh, idam in our tantric practice as a method to help us uh, attain that uh, enlightened state more quickly, keeping in mind this is an infographic and uh, all the things that it represents. We uh, usually use the word visualization, but uh, that is a little bit too limited. Uh, I think imagination is much better We imagine that we're in this form. It's not just that we look like that, but uh, that we speak like that, we think like that, we act like that, we enjoy things the way that, uh, you know, we would enjoy uh, things at that time. All our senses are like like that. So it's a full imagination. So we can see that uh, Yidam practice is uh, very advanced. And before we can practice it, we need a a firm foundation in the sutra teachings, especially, first of all, renunciation, the determination to be free, which means that we are determined to be free and renounce our ordinary appearance, our ordinary way of acting, our ordinary way of relating to others, because it's filled with confusion and just causes a lot of problems. So we have to be willing to renounce that, to give that up, to be determined to be free of that. That's not easy to be sincere about that. And uh, we need bodhicitta, as I've explained, at least a a firm development of it. It might not have to be the full definitional thing, but a full, a firm development of it and a correct understanding of voidness, of the reality of uh, what we're doing, otherwise uh, it's no different from a crazy person imagining they're Cleopatra or Napoleon. Although I suppose a Buddha could manifest as a Mickey Mouse if it would help somebody. And uh, we have to have uh, completed an appropriate amount of preliminary practices in order to build up uh, the positive uh, force or positive potential that will help us to overcome mental blocks that we have in this uh, practice. And we need a qualified guidance from a qualified teacher, the appropriate uh, tantric initiations, keeping of vows, and uh, uh, correct instruction in the practice, and uh, a good level of uh, concentration and the ability to visualize. So developed imagination. So this is optimal. The conventional obstacles are when we lack any of these. And the deepest obstacle is uh, when we identify cor- concretely with being the Yidam, that we think we're already that, when we're in fact not. Uh, uh, I'm already a Buddha, you know. 
you uh, sometimes have, uh, I've seen this in the Dharamsala, where uh, there was this one woman who thought that she was Tara and took off all her clothes and ran around in the marketplace naked, proclaiming that she was Tara. So that type of uh, uh, problem would be the deepest obstacle, that you think you really are this figure. Mm. So now, keeping in mind <laughs> what Yidam practice is, I mean, uh, we can't really analyze it unless we have uh, a clear idea of uh, what it is and what a Yidam is, then we can uh, use this uh, five dimensions of relational reality to examine the type of relationship that uh, we establish between ourselves now <laughs> and our not yet happening self in the form of a Yidam. It's very delicate. How do you relate to this Yidam that you are imagining yourself as? So please keep in mind that uh, we're not talking about these Yidams like some sort of saint in uh, a heaven. You know, we're praying to Saint Tara to help us. We're not talking about that type of relationship. Not at all. So, first of all, the dimension of factual variables. Uh, optimally, the uh, factual variables such as our personal circumstances or surroundings should not affect the practice at all. It doesn't make any difference where we are or how old we are, where we come from, what our culture is, not at all. Uh, conventional obstacles would be if we have uh, some serious physical or mental disease, you know, like we're in a lot of pain that uh, uh, can be very difficult to uh, do any sort of practice at that time. Or we're in some situation of uh, extreme danger to our uh, lives. You know, we're being tortured or we're in some uh, earthquake or uh, tsunami or something uh, like that. And you're just overwhelmed by the circumstances. I mean, actually, if you think about it, uh, this type of uh, practice of imagining where a yidam is something that we're supposed to do all the time. Well... You know, when we're distracted by entertainment or by, you know, uh, whatever. Very difficult to remember. To be uh, mindful. Mindful means to remember. But optimally, it shouldn't matter what we're doing. The deepest obstacle is, uh, for instance, uh, concretely identifying with our biological sex and believing that we can't imagine ourselves as a yidam of a different sex. Like, uh, for instance, a, uh, a woman uh, saying that I can't uh, imagine myself in the form of a male uh, Edom, or a man uh, saying that I can't imagine myself in the form of a female. Oh. Remember, we are only uh, a specific sex in one lifetime, that we have an uh, infinite number of lives, and sometimes male, sometimes female. We are not, uh, uh, you know established, you know, permanently as one gender. But uh, this is, uh, uh, for most of us, uh, a very, very strong part of our concrete identity is our uh, sex, whether we're male, female, or transsexual, or whatever. And uh, remember, when we visualize ourselves or imagine ourselves as a couple, you know, very often uh, these idams are a couple, we imagine that we are both members of the couple. 
but not just one of them. And there's this other figure that we're embracing. We're both. They represent, uh, um, on the simplest level, method and wisdom. We're both. Uh, and in many of these uh, uh, practices, we imagine that we are a very large group of figures. We're all of them, 722 in Kala Chakra. And not only all the figures, but also the building of the mandala as well. The, me is, imputed on, is an imputation on all of that. But uh, if you think about it, uh, the self is an imputation on <clears throat> all the parts of the body, the digestive system, the circulatory system, the, uh, uh, um, all the, you know, the uh, sense organs, the uh, skin, you know, so like the, uh, the building, an and all the psychological, mental factors, etc. So the self, me, is an imputation on this huge collection of things, even conventionally. So there shouldn't be a problem in the me being an imputation on all these various figures and the building as well in the uh, visualization. But when you identify solidly with just being, you know, one solid me, then you have difficulty in doing that. That's a big obstacle. Uh, another deep obstacle is uh, when we identify with our culture and say, I can't visualize myself in this form. It's too Indian. It's too Tibetan. Why can't we have a Western form? But uh, this is uh, forgetting that these forms are infographics. Now, the dimension of psychological variables. Uh, optimally, we need to have uh, sufficient cognitive abilities, you know, intelligence, understanding, and so on, to be able to gain a firm foundation in the sutra teachings, the ability to visualize, and sufficient discipline and concentration to uh, engage in uh, long-term sustained meditational practice, and that these enlightening qualities of the yidam, you know, infinite compassion and understanding, etc., being able to take precedence over our ordinary unenlightened qualities, that at least we can imagine these things. You know, like when we uh, find ourselves like acting like an idiot, we are able to uh, remember that, hey, you know, I'm Chenrezig. Chenrezig doesn't act like an idiot. So you're able to, you know, use this practice to overcome when we're acting in uh, very um, foolish ways. Then conventional obstacles uh, would be lacking any of these. Deepest obstacles would be concretely identifying with the Yidam and deluding ourselves to think that we're already an enlightened Buddha. Well, thinking that we're already Thinking. enlightened when we're not. And uh, also uh, believing that this, uh, if we do this Yidam practice, we don't have to do any other, any other practices, that this is enough. Uh, what about the dimension of systemic variables? Uh, we don't have, you know, the ordinary type of uh, systemic interactions with the Yidam as you would with an actual person, because it's uh, imagined. But we do have things like making offerings to the Yidam, to ourselves as a Yidam, and so on. So there is a certain uh, system uh, within of uh, um, practices within which we interact with the Yidam. So optimally, we uh, engage in the Sidam practice following all the procedures and steps of uh, traditional sadhana. Sadhana is the type of practice that uh, uh, we perform, that we do 
for transforming ourselves into this yidam. So the system within which we do yidam practice is uh, all the uh, procedures of uh, sadhana. And a conventional obstacle is uh, engaging in this without all of those procedures. And a sadhana is like a script of, a, of an opera. I mean, there's many, many, many uh, scenes which take place in it with offering goddesses and transformation of things and so on. You know, what is uh, you know, most essential in the sadhana, in addition to bodhicitta and so on, all the preliminaries, is that, uh, first of all, we uh, focus on the voidness of the false self and our ordinary appearance, our ordinary body and so on. So we focus explicitly on the absence of anything uh, corresponding to this false self and so on. That's total absorption on voidness. So an absence appears explicitly. That's what we are focusing on. And then we appear uh, the subsequent attainment that we have. That's usually translated as post-meditation, which is inaccurate translation. Uh, subsequent to that, we imagine that we arise in the form of this yidam. So that's what appears because we still aren't enlightened, it appears to be self-established. And implicitly, we understand its voidness. So that's what it means. Within a state of voidness, we arise as the yidam. So then, so that gets us into the practice, getting rid of our ordinary appearance, the real understanding of voidness. Now, the main point in the practice, since uh, the uh, belief in this false self you know, will automatically arise again, is to focus on the voidness of the yidam and the voidness of the self, imagining that we are the yidam. So again, focus on voidness and then again arise in the form of uh, the yidam with the implicit understanding of its voidness. So we can see the importance of the tantric vow of meditating on voidness six times a day. That uh, if uh, we don't do that, and we're not really familiar with the correct understanding of voidness, this whole yidam practice uh, just doesn't work. So the deepest obstacle is identifying the false self with the yidam and imagining that making offerings and so on will uh, bring enlightenment to us as this yidam, you know, in the terms of, uh, you know, as a false self being the yidam. Imagining that you know, in terms of uh, systemic uh, variables, that when we're making offerings, that the false self is actually this yidam, and it uh, is a form of worshiping ourselves as a god. Uh, you know, these, we imagine these offering deities and coming forth and making offerings to us. So if we think that I'm really, you know, this yidam, that they're worshiping me, I'm a god. That's crazy. The worship is a god. That they are worshiping me as if I ah, were they, a god. They are worshiping. Uh, you have all sorts of offerings being made to, that you have made to yourself as the Edom. So, the dimension of relational ethics. We don't have an actually relation of giving and taking between you know, ourselves and somebody else. 
but uh, we can think of it in terms of giving and receiving between the conventional self and the idam. So optimally, understanding that our making offerings to the idam and uh, visualizing helping all beings, that uh, we understand these as methods for building up the positive force to be able to attain enlightenment. We understand why we're doing this. And uh, also when we imagine uh, in the practice, uh, yidam in front of us, and uh, we receive inspiration in the you know, form of lights coming into us and receive initiations from them and so on. Optimally, we understand this is a method to enhance and stimulate our Buddha nature factors to grow. Conventional obstacles would be our visualization of making these offerings and receiving inspiration becoming mechanical. It's very, very easy that it becomes mechanical. There's no feeling there. It's uh, at best a cartoon that's happening. And the deepest obstacle is, uh, I mentioned this uh, earlier in terms of uh, systemic variables. I had uh, skipped ahead in my outline, but uh, here the deepest obstacle in terms of relational ethics is concretely identifying our false self with the idam and imagining that making offerings to the false self will bring us to enlightenment. Now, in terms of the dimension of relational self-other establishment, this is quite delicate. Optimally, remember we had uh, six different modes of this self-other establishment. And optimally, it would be, uh, in a sense, part of the first uh, mode, intrasubject counterposition, it was called, technical term and the we relationship. So let's look at these. Okay, intra-subject counterposition. This, the example of that was uh, somebody who uh, cuts themselves or does extreme sports or a lot of piercing and uh, a lot of tattoos and so on because uh, uh, there's no clear division between self and other there. But uh, in feeling pain, they establish me. I exist because of this pain. Otherwise, they have the sense that they ordinarily don't feel anything. I have no feelings. It's very common. So in order, so they're completely lost. So to get this uh, feeling of me, they have to engage in uh, these very painful things. That gives them feeling because it's very strong and intense. It's fairly common with uh, uh, some members of the younger generation. But uh, in this ordinary experience, uh, uh, people with this imagine that uh, they're this false self, you know, the self-established, you know, that's something concrete all by itself, and this uh, pain that this is also, you know, something concrete and self-established, and uh, 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 they have this uh, uh, relation with the pain. Here, it's quite different with the yidam, optimally. So here, the boundary uh, between the self and yidam is not like the boundary between a solid me and a solid pain. It's not a solid me and a solid yidam that have a relation. You know, like uh, we had the football game is an imputation on all the different uh, plays during the uh, game. 
So here, like a football game, the self is an imputation on that last play of, uh, you know, that end play when we are enlightened as a yidam. And the uh, self and the yidam are neither uh, the same, truly identical, nor are they truly separate. You know, the uh, football game is not identical with the uh, last play or the score, and it's not something which exists totally separate from the last play or the score. It's an imputation on that as part of it. So this is uh, one point of view, optimally, of the type of relation that we have with uh, the Yidam. It's this intrapersonal, so you know, within ourselves, intrasubjective, I should say, within ourselves, we have this uh, relation with the Yidam. It's not yet happening, right? The, the counterbalance between the conventional self and the Yidam. Conventional self being the imputation on the Yidam. You know, there's contraposition, so that's like a, a balance between the conventional self as an imputation on the Yidam. This is the balance that you're making of these two, which are neither identical nor completely different. And in doing this, we establish a we relationship in terms of the merger of the self and the Yidam. Or if uh, we look at uh, the advanced uh, guru yoga practices, like the uh, Lama Chuba, the uh, Guru Puja done in the Gelupa tradition, then uh, there's the merging of the self with the Guru Yidam, so the self and the spiritual teacher and the Yidam to make a we. It becomes quite complicated if you really do it properly. So optimally, that we relationship would enhance and increase our bodhicitta practice in terms of the relationship that we have as a we with all beings practicing as a bodhisattva. So that we of me and the yidam, conventional me, yidam, and even me and the yidam and the spiritual teacher helps to improve that relationship of we with all, limit, all beings that we're working to help. It's optimal. Conventional obstacle would be when merging with the yidam, losing any sense of our individual conventional self. Losing any sense of our individual conventional self when we merge with the yidam. That's a conventional, conventional obstacle. obstacle. We have no sense of me anymore. Um, the deepest obstacle is uh, if we haven't refuted the false me, understanding the false me as being identical with the yidam. You know, when you do this Yidam practice, and we're imagining ourselves in the form of the Yidam, and uh, more advanced practices to imagine everybody in that form all around us, the way that it's done um, on the usual level, I mean, there are more advanced levels, but on the usual level, is that uh, to our senses, in other words, what we see, we see ordinary form of ourself or uh, people or our environment and so on. But with our minds, we understand and it appears in the form of the yidam and the mandala. If that were not the case, you'd never be able to cross the street, be it by a car. So it's a mistake to lose sight of that conventional 
reality. You see? Now, what about dealing with our close personal relationships while relating to a yidam? How does it affect them? Optimally, we keep the practice private when we hear about secrecy and tantra and so on. Secrecy means keep it private. And we behave in accordance with the conventional roles in our family and professions and in all our relationships. Optimally. It doesn't interfere with that. What we're doing with our minds is private. That's the same advice we have in the seven-point uh, mind training, Lojong, where it says, uh, uh, transform your mind, but on the outside, keep normal, keep ordinary. And optimally, this Yidam practice would uh, enhance our uh, ethical behavior toward others and treating them fairly. It doesn't obscure the fact that they are still human beings and have needs and so on. Conventional obstacles would be making known to others that we're doing Yidam practice, you know, broadcasting, oh, I'm doing this, and expecting to be treated specially by others. Or our uh, practice uh, interferes with our ability to interact you know, with others in an ethical way that uh, uh, takes into account their needs and so on. Yeah. And we're just off in our fantasy world of the Yidam. And the deepest obstacle would be concretely identifying with the Yidam and using it to gain power over others. Yeah, go on a power trip with, you know, I am this forceful deity and wham, you know, I'm going to, you know, do all sorts of uh, uh, strong things. Or uh, identifying with uh, this uh, uh, Yidam being in a certain rigid posture and imagine that we're frozen like that, uh, like a, uh, a plastic uh, action figure. You know, as my teacher, uh, Sirkum Rinpoche, used to uh, uh, explain, of course, as uh, uh, Yamantika, although he's standing, of course he can sit down, can lie down, doesn't have to hold all these things all the time. Uh, he said it's like wearing clothes. You uh, are wearing clothes whether you're standing, sitting, lying down. You're still wearing the clothes. You don't have to uh, constantly uh, imagine the clothes that you're wearing. You know that you're wearing these clothes. <laughs> he explained like that. And uh, when someone asked him uh, uh, if you're supposed to be visualizing uh, yourself as Yamantika all day long, uh, what about... Uh, um, uh, Chen Rezi practice, reciting Omani Pemi Hum, to which uh, Rinpoche replied, uh, you mean Yamantika can't recite Omani Pemi Hum? <laughs> of course he can. <laughs> so, as you see, this uh, Yidam practice, it's important not to make it some mystical, weird, you know, trip, especially not an ego trip, but uh, to uh, integrate it into our conventional lives. So, in summary, uh, Buddhism teaches us about uh, uh, dependent arising of the self and uh, others and uh, relationships. We already have that analysis in, uh, from the uh, Buddhist presentation. So, dependent arising in terms of changing causes and conditions and parts and names and concepts. And uh, we can expand 
that uh, understanding of dependent arising if we uh, uh, bring in these five dimensions of relational reality from contextual therapy. And uh, if we can uh, apply uh, this uh, expanded understanding of uh, dependent arising uh, and deconstruct, you know, fully, you know, what's going on with self, other, and relationships, then we become much less rigid. We see that the self, other, relationships, these are dynamic things, you know, that change moment to moment, depending on all these things that uh, affect, it, affect them. And if we become aware of uh, the obstacles that could arise in any type of uh, relationship, then we can uh, try to avoid them by understanding what are the optimal ways of uh, relating. And although we've looked at three specific types of relationships within the context of Buddhist practice, we need to uh, extend this analysis to all our relationships. Because if we want to understand the true nature of ourselves, of self and others, it is an imputation on the self in all of these relationships. They're all going on and they're all changing moment to moment. You know, with all these variables going on, that way we really have a, uh, a full deconstruction of uh, this false self, and we can act uh, just in terms of the, the mere I, the conventional self, uh, in the optimal way to be of best help to everyone. So we have time for just uh, a few questions, if you have yeah. any. Alex, you explained about the difference between individual awakening and general awakening when defining bodhicitta. Mm-hmm. What is, could you comment on that? Uh, we are all individuals, and so uh, we all uh, attain our own individual enlightenments. There's not some general universal enlightenment that uh, we all can plug into and we become uh, enlightened. All Buddhas are individual beings. They're not all one being. That's indicated clearly by the fact that uh, there are some beings that have the karmic relation to be able to meet with Buddha Shakyamuni, and there are others who don't have that karma, but they have the karma to meet with uh, Buddha Maitreya, the next Buddha. So each Buddha is individual. The karmic relations they have and so on, individual. They all have the same qualities, all the Buddhas. So it's like, uh, you know, you can ask the question, how can there be more than one uh, omniscient mind? Well, if you think of a mirror that can reflect absolutely everything, well, you can have several mirrors that uh, reflect absolutely everything. Can't you? To use a, to use a silly example, uh, we all have a nose. It's not that there's some universal nose that uh, we all have on our face. Noses are individual. So likewise, every Buddha uh, has their own individual enlightenment. It's not one generic enlightenment. Так что каждый Будда имеет свое индивидуальное пробуждение. Это не некое общее пробуждение. Anyone else? Um, there is a, a such formulation. There's a what? formulation uh, now you should uh, feel uh, um, pride of idam uh, so 
Uh, what is the meaning of it? Uh, who should feel this pride of Yidam uh, me, uh, this conventional me, uh, who feels the pride of being Yidam, or Yidam himself, uh, who should feel the pride being himself Yidam? Well, this is why we uh, have in uh, this uh, dimension of self-other uh, uh, establishment, this uh, contraposition that uh, we're talking about the conventional self as an imputation on the Yidam. So it's not um, one or the other feeling the pride. It's the um, merger of those two as a we. Having the pride of the Yidam means the imputation of the conventional self on the basis of the Yidam. And the self and the Yidam are neither identical nor totally separate. So it's very important to understand what imputation means. And that's why I use the example of a football game, because I think that's easier to understand. So the question is uh, um, regarding uh, this um, uh, systemic dimension uh, and uh, conventional uh, obstacle uh, uh, to uh, systemic, yeah. systemic dimension and conventional obstacle. Uh, you mentioned uh, the need uh, for us to follow sadhana, mm -hmm. uh, not uh, losing uh, uh, parts of it, uh, to follow it uh, fully. Uh, but uh, we have uh, different uh, types of sadhana, short ones and long ones, and uh, if we uh, do short uh, version of sadhana, then there are no some parts which we have in uh, long sadhana, uh, how should we understand uh, this case? And uh, the second question is, uh, what would be, from your point of view, optimal uh, um, uh, 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 proportion between uh, this uh, short and long versions uh, for our daily life? Mm. My teacher, Serkan said that uh, uh, long sadhanas are for beginners, short sadhanas are for advanced practitioners. When you have become uh, familiar enough with the uh, long sadhana that you don't have to uh, recite all of it and you can just uh, imagine each of the steps, then you can do the short sadhana and fill in all the parts that are missing. That, of course, is very, very difficult, especially as... Uh, a uh, busy uh, person in the modern world with job and family and so on. These sadhanas are very, very long, some of them. So uh, we have to be uh, very, very careful not to be a collector of initiations and uh, commitments. That's why His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when he gives uh, initiations where there are uh, um, foreigners uh, attending, he often uh, makes it quite specific that uh, there's no sadhana commitment, only short commitment to uh, recite the mantra and so on. This is out of his kindness by realizing that most people are unable to keep the sadhana commitment. But if uh, all we're doing is uh, reciting the mantra, then we should at least start it with refuge in bodhicitta and uh, at least... Uh, have a meditation on voidness first, you know, refuting the false me and uh, then arising within that understanding of voidness as the Yidam. Then recite the mantra and end with the dedication. 
But if we really are very, very serious in our practice, then we should work with a long sadhana. Now, one piece of advice, which I think is very important, it comes from Tsongkhapa, actually, uh, which is that uh, don't get hung up in all the tiny little details of these visualizations. Uh, That's not the point. You know, worrying about all the jewelry, what it looks like, and uh, so on. Uh, you'll never be able to visualize. Uh, Tsongkhapa says that of the two, the pride of the deity and the clarity of the visualization, you work on the pride of the deity first. In other words, you have a general, vague visualization of something. Have the imputation of the self on that, and as your concentration improves, the clarity of the details of the visualization will eventually come into focus. So the main thing is the imputation of me on, you know, this vague form of the Yidam. And then as uh, the concentration improves, you add one detail at a time. It says start with the uh, third eye, um, the eye in the, in the middle of the forehead. So we have time for one more question. Um. Uh, do you think it is possible uh, to complete uh, Vajrayana uh, practice uh, pass? Uh, um, to and, uh, complete it part? To complete it, to complete, to make it completely, uh, to, 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 um, to finish it uh, uh, in isolation of uh, uh, traditional circumstances of uh, such Buddhist societies as uh, Indian or Tibetan uh, society. In theory, it is possible to uh, attain enlightenment in uh, this lifetime. However, it is highly, highly unlikely. If we have built up an unbelievable amount of positive force, usually called merit, but uh, if we've built up you know, over three zillion countless eons, as is described, then in that last lifetime, for instance, as uh, Gautama, uh, Buddha, I mean, you know, Shakyamuni, or as Milarepa, or somebody like that, then in that lifetime you can attain enlightenment. But most of us have uh, hardly begun building up so much positive force. You know, if we look at our lifetime of how many positive thoughts and how many negative thoughts we've had during our lifetime, I think most of us will realize that uh, we have a long way to go. But that's no reason to get discouraged. We can make progress in this lifetime, but remember, progress is never linear. It always goes up and down, up and down. His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, says that uh, he finds uh, the presentation that uh, we need to build up positive force over three zillion eons very, very encouraging. He likes that very much because uh, then if you understand that, you don't have any uh, expectations. And because you don't have any uh, expectations, you don't have any disappointments. That's a very helpful piece of advice. Thank you.